Hello and welcome to CigarCast, your weekly one-stop shop for all things cigar-related, including industry news, reviews, and everything in between. We're recording live from Crown Cigars and Nails here in beautiful Brentwood, Tennessee. I'm one of your hosts, Trey Debman, and he's got a little change in his pocket going jing-a-ling-a-ling, Mr. Shane Reeves. <laughs> I had a very good week last week. You did. I will, I will definitely have to say I had a very good week, and I've had this week off to enjoy myself. I, I had decided that I was going to utilize this week to do some reading, and then that jerk that wrote that book... Um, wrote it so well that wrote you Wrote it so went. well, I burned through it in like three... Oh, hey, Jay, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> no. We're joined tonight by Jay Drescher, author, lawyer, man about town, provocateur. I don't know. What all are you? <laughs> that That's enough. He, oh, okay. A, another man who fits in no box. In, exactly. And all, but... So we're recording early in the morning this morning. Yeah, this is I've, this is throwing me off. I've yet to have... Now, folks, buckle up. You're getting morning shame. <laughs> I've had the three miles of the Labrador. I've been on vacation for a couple of days. I'm still burning on about a half a tank of pre-workout. And I haven't had my cigar yet to kind of calm me down and even me out. So anything's I possible. I noticed you were at about an eight. I was trying to figure out the pre-workout. That's the final piece in that puzzle I was trying to work yeah, out. Yeah, I kind of take the pre-workout to get through the lab walk. And then I have to sit and burn a cigar to just kind of burn down and wind down. And since I was coming to do this, I hadn't. <laughs> so I'm like a golf ball teed off in a brand new tile bathroom today. Everybody just <laughs> hold on. <laughs> And then I come in and Jay's here and I get to yell at him across the room to get on the podcast. And I'm just, I'm happy. Doing what you do best. I am. I'm just, I'm bringing the party, man. Everybody get ready. So Jay, since the last time we had you on the show, uh, you've since released Glasby's Pirates, the second in your series. Um, I have started it. I have not finished it. And I know that Shane knocked it out in about half an hour. Um, How has it been received so far? Well, the people that have... uh very, very few people have finished it. So that's why I was so eager to hear from Shane. Uh, I want you to both know, if you hadn't noticed already, that um, since you've allowed me to come on your podcast and talk about my first book, you are mentioned by name in the acknowledgement section, both of you, and, and, and with all sincerity. So uh, I appreciate you bringing it up on the spur of the moment today. Um, it took a lot longer to write than I thought. I was anxious to get it done. I was most anxious to hear from someone who read it start to finish, and Shane and I did, had a chance to talk about it last night. So uh, uh, I was very flattered and, and happy because, as I've said many times, it's very hard for me, can't speak for anyone else, to judge my own work. Right. You know, I live with it, I read it, and I read it, and I reread it, and I edit it, and I edit it, and... It's just, I just, I just wanted to get it done because mm-hmm. it took much longer than anticipated. But now that I have gotten it done, and as I start to get nice feedback, uh, I'm starting to think about. I want to. I'm kind of anxious to get started on the next book. Well, it was really interesting because last night before poker, Jay, Jay, and I came in, and I made the round of the shop, and finally got over there where we could talk about the book. And there was actually another author standing there. And he was, it was kind of like watching a NASCAR race. He was kind of bump drafting off of Jay and me talking about the book and all, which he writes serial killer books, write what you know. And <laughs> I'm fairly sure, let me just tell you, I'm not going in a dark basement with that dude. <laughs> There's just no possible way. I had met him, I had met 
that let's not mention names, but I had met that gentleman at a writer seminar uh, for mystery and thriller writers. Uh, so I've I've known him, but I don't know him very well. Uh, I have met some very famous writers. Uh, the most one of the most famous is Michael Conley, and strangely introverted. Uh, I realized that he was kind of uh, on the fringe of the conversation, but I felt a little self-conscious because it was all about me and all about us, and it wasn't about him, but, you know, everybody gets their 15 minutes in the sun, and then you spend the rest of your life in the shade. But um, I, I know from talking to people that have read his first and second book, they're really, really unusual, strange. I see that. And uh, he's an eccentric person. Mm-hmm. So you'd expect that almost. Yeah, yeah. His his nature and his mannerisms are really wild. But no, I don't want to get too deep into him. But it was interesting to be sitting telling one author how much you enjoyed his book while another one kind of sitting there well, dying. I I, of th- it's like I was giving you shot after shot of whiskey, and he was dying of thirst. <laughs> it was really a cool experience. There was a little. There was a little. Uh, there was a little of that, and I felt a little, little self conscious. But I was so eager. And as we talked about before we went live, um, I knew that you'd be honest, and, and I wanted to get feedback. I didn't want to just get adulation. I wanted to get feedback. Of course, it was very positive, and I was very gratified because it does, whether you're a songwriter, actor, storyteller, writer, and Trey, you are, and have done all those things, I think, in one respect or another, you want to know how to make it better. Right. You want to know what you did right. Uh, because it's reinforcement. You also want to know how you could have made it better or where you might have messed up. So that's all good. Well, even being a podcaster. Well, and I think it's why I think it's why sports speaks to so many people because you do get that instant feedback. If you swing the bat and you don't make contact, you know you've done something wrong. You know, uh, and I think there's something incredibly gratifying that as we get into adulthood, so much of what we do in our day-to-day lives, we do without any sort of feedback. And it's always really gratifying to get that kind of, either that corrective voice of there might be a better way to go about this or, or an attaboy, you know. Just, be, just because a kid's not eight years old anymore doesn't mean that they don't like being told they did something well. Well, a lot of, a lot of men and women, I suppose, uh, my oldest daughter is, is a coach and a mentor, um, Positive reinforcement is very important because it encourages you, it motivates you. You have to also be willing to take criticism because if you take it personally, it, it doesn't do you any good. If you take it on board, you know you can you can sharpen your razor a little bit more that way. Um, so feedback is very important, uh, whether you're. What it, in whatever endeavor you're doing because you, you can't operate in a vacuum. Well, and it's going to be interesting because one of the things that keeps threatening to happen is um, Tom keeps threatening that he's going to have the head of Gurkhas come in here and do a podcast with us. And regular listeners to the podcast knows that we've pretty been pretty merciless on Gurkha. Mm-hmm. Now, not unfairly, never to the point of, of what would the vernacular of hate never never malicious in its intent no just calling a spade a spade hey this don't hit my palate but that it'll be interesting because that's exactly what you're talking about when he's sitting in here um i'm not going to pull no punches trey may but well there's a difference between being honest and being malicious true true. And, and and i think that's especially when you're talking about someone's life work 
it's it's important to to approach any type of, of criticism with a certain level of grace. Well, we're getting ahead of our com- of our are. topic about stoicism, which is coming soon. Right. And so, also, but we haven't even talked about our cigars. Yet. I, I we got to get our cigars out here. All right. Well, you went ahead and lit it while we were. I was just doing a soft introduction, and then you went. So. Um, Go ahead and tell us what you're smoking first. All right. So the Crux guy come in here, and the local staff passed on to me one of the Crux to get my opinion of it about whether or not to carry these in the shop. So I'm smoking a Crux Crux Guild. I think from now on, for the rest of my life, the first cigar I smoke of any new cigar, I'm going to smoke a Robusto. It's, it's the way to go. It seems to me to be the most fair Vitola for giving you the true indication of a cigar. In, in most cases, as we've talked about on the show before, it is the size that the blend was made for. They, they blend to a Robusto. So I have a Crux Guild Robusto here in my hand. This is the Nicaraguan, as you can tell because the wrapper's orange. Um, Nicaraguan binder, Nicaraguan filler. The wrapper is Habano. It's just, I love that oily. Look at that rich, it oily is. wrapper. Feels good in the hand. Got a great mouth feel. Um, I've already lit it up and smoked a, you know, the first end of it, and just really a good smoke. I mean, really, nothing has stood out above any other feature of it yet. I'm going to be interested when it gets hot to really get the full range. I hope not to get so distracted of our conversation that I forget to judge my cigar. If I do, then I apologize and Crux send me another one and I'll smoke it for you. But anyway, and I'll. I did give Jay. Well, you go ahead and tell us about yours, Trey. So I am smoking uh, from Tatuaje the Mexican Experiment. Now I've had the ME two before, and I smoked it on the show. I've not actually had the the first one. Now they both share the same recipe, which is a Mexican San Andreas wrapper over Nicaraguan binder and filler. I, so I don't know what the specific differences are. Uh, but I just I saw it in there, and it was something that I knew I hadn't smoked before, so I figured I'd give it a shot. By the way, thanks to your book, I could never view smoke rings the same. Thank you for ruining smoke rings. Well, I don't know that you ruined smoke rings for me. You just added a complication to smoke rings in my life. That was intentional. <laughs> it wasn't you, malicious, you know, though. You do know your audience. <laughs> what, are, what are you smoking, Jake? I have no idea. So uh, I don't know what the wrapper is. I don't know what the filler is. I don't know what size it is. I know that I got it for free, so that makes it good. According to this fancy label, it is, it is a four kicks. One of you is going to have to fill in the gap. So it's Crown Heads four kicks. That was the first cigar Crown Heads made was, was. the four kicks. Um, Nicaraguan binder, Nicaraguan filler. The wrapper is an Ecuadorian Habano. Uh, Dominican Republic of origin, even though everything comes from Ecuador and Nicaragua. I've never understood that. I will say I have never had another cigar that handles age as well as the Four Kicks does. I had one about a year ago that I had been sitting on for about five years. Oh, my gosh, that thing was incredible. I'll tell you, I had the um, CAO Conciliary. I had one sitting in my humidor that I smoked this week. It's been sitting there about two years. And remember when we smoked the Soprano cigar, how it had that sweet, fruity flavor kind of? The conciliary does that with a little age. I'm about to buy a box of conciliaries. And sit on them. Lock them away for five years and then enjoy them. Well, over the last year, I've started smoking cigars more regularly, probably one or two a day on average. Um, this is really good. I really enjoy it. It's uh, It draws well. Mm. Uh, I don't like really really strong cigars i like milder cigars and this this kind of fits the bill i'd smoke another one 
Yeah, it's one that I won in poker last, or that actually Glenda via a dignitary won in poker last night. Fair enough. <laughs> What's the price range on this? 12? 10? 10, uh, 12? 10. Yeah, 10, 12. Yeah, I can tell it's a quality cigar. Yeah, very nice cigar. Okay, so let's talk about the first article. You want to talk about the stinky? Yeah. I had that out of order. Um, oh. So the so Quality Importers, who's been responsible for the Stinky line for as long as I can remember, um, has decided they're going to release an update, and they're expanding the line. Anybody who has had the opportunity to use a Stinky ashtray knows that there is no better ashtray design in the world than the Stinky. And if if you're not really if you're new to cigars or if you're you're just not really into the hobby, that may sound really silly. The idea that an ashtray makes a difference, but it, it looks kind of like an urn, and it's it's very deep. It's got a, a rest for four cigars in the main line. They they make them all the way down to just kind of a single shot. Here it is. Um, they've expanded uh, to offer some additional colors. One of the things that I think makes this such a good design is how deep that bowl is, and it's great if you're a home smoker patio kind of thing because the wind can whip around and it's not going to throw your ash all over the your yard or your patio. I like most about it. It takes up very. It takes a a less proportionate area of table than the ashtray actually represents. As, yeah, exactly, because it's but, so deep. Right, it's so deep and so narrow at the bottom. It takes up less of your table to remain stable than what it normally would. Like this, this ceramic traditional ceramic ashtray we got in the middle of us here. And those are great. I've got several of those. I love that design, um, but it, it still doesn't quite. Um, and, and I think part of what it is on these ceramics, you get this rounded edge uh, from the form that they were poured out of. And so you get, um, I, I think air travels over that more easily, whereas the stinky, you get that hard edge and it creates a much better barrier against wind pulling your ashes out. Well, and then they also, they've got the stinky single personal ashtray. I have one of those. You do? Do you mm. like it? I don't have I one. Do. Um, I do. I don't see the difference in having the little one and the big one. So I leave this. So I got this in a raffle at an event is the only reason I have it. I probably wouldn't have bought one, uh, especially not at $18. But um, mine is the the stainless steel chrome, which is, is not listed here. I leave it in my shop, in my little workshop area uh, on my on my bench. And it's great if you are fiddling around in the garage or something like that and you have a cigar and you... Less than an ashtray, you need a place to sit it. Right. It takes up very little room. It's about as wide as like a traditional water glass uh, at the top, but only about four inches tall. So uh, it takes up very little real estate and is great if you're just, if you're the only smoker in the area and you don't, and you don't have to worry about making sure everybody has the ability to ash at once. If it's just for you, it's, it's perfect. And then, of course, they talk about the smaller one, the one that goes in the cup holder of the car. But if you're in the car, don't you just throw your ash out the window? So, and it, this really depends on the car you drive. So, I've been smoking in my car since I've been smoking cigars, so 16 years. When I had a convertible, it was great. <laughs> um, you know, in my more sedan-like cars, my Kia, my Subaru, my thing... It's really easy to get the ash out the window 
the problem comes when you drive a car shaped like a toaster, as I'm starting to learn. Uh, you get so much buffeting of wind that, you know, in a traditional aerodynamic shape, the wind passing over the windows is actually going to draw air out of the cab. That's why, you know, the smoke gets sucked out the window. As, as you, in that car and others like it, Jeeps, trucks, things like that, you get this buffeting. And so wind kind of goes in and out at the same time. And in all my 16 years smoking, I've never like this car had one where I go to ash out the window and it ends up down the between my neck and the back <laughs> collar of my shirt. I've had and that when happen. When you drive a five speed, that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> Six speed. Thank you very much. Oh. And uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, and I have, so I have noticed some, some issues with that. I also have, um, I have issues if I'm trying to smoke when it's raining in that car versus some other cars I've owned. And so, for those reasons, I can see why it would be beneficial. If you've got a sunroof, leave the windows up, pop that little vent and ash in your ashtray in your cup holder. I think it's I think it's brilliant if you have a kind of car that makes it tough. Well, this would have probably saved me a lot of grief when Jay and Austin and I rode back from Tunica together. Because Austin was just reaching up and flicking his ash out the sunroof, oh, but he can... wasn't reaching far enough. So it was just all falling back down yeah, so, on everybody? No, it just all fell into the chamber where the sunroof recesses to. Oh, when I got home, I had to vacuum <laughs> my sunroof <laughs> at all. So it was very, very much. Although about that, I will say, and I've never had theirs. I've had the Zycar version, which is slightly different. The, the key to a good uh, car ashtray is how well how well it seals because there is nothing as wonderful as the smell of a good cigar there's nothing as terrible as stale ash yeah you know you almost need to drop like a clorox wipe in the bottom of it or something Ooh. just to dist- just oh. to su- or baking soda or anything baking to soda absorb maybe, the yeah. smell well they don't make baking soda wipes yeah you just throw a little baking soda in the bottom of it Anyway, somebody listening to this podcast will probably come up with one. Probably so. That's right. Million-dollar ideal. Yeah, baking soda wipes, <laughs> that also was, that known as the Shane. Would work very well. But, so, how far are you in the book, Trey? I got to know. I'm four chapters. You're, four, you're only four chapters. How, how did you stop? I, <laughs> did so, the house catch fire? I, had, I did not have a great week last week. And so it was just kind of hard for me to get back to it, to find the time. I was It was one of those where I was just kind of spinning my wheels and just trying to keep my head above water. And I'm one of those people that I absolutely love to read. And when I get started on something, I shut the entire world out. And when you're having the kind of week like I was last week where you can't turn your brain off and you can't shut the world out, it makes it really hard because anything I would have read, I would have not retained because I wouldn't have been able to focus and enjoy it. So it was one of those where I just kind of took a step back and used some uh, other methods of trying to clear my head throughout the and and I'm I'm doing much. I'm trying to get back to it this week. So when you Jay, when you read, how do you read? Do you just kind of left to right? Catches catch canned. Yeah, yeah. He reads right to left. Look, <laughs> <laughs> well, I am. But uh, do you, is it just kind of catches catch can for you, or is it an appointment, or on the on the John? How do you do it? Depends on the book. If it's uh, if it's well written, I can I can read a book. Well, I've <clears throat> I've done this before. I've I've read some paperbacks from start to finish in about five hours, a three hundred page book. So I, mean, I am a fast reader. If the book is uh, a history book, where it's kind of written like a textbook, 
uh, it'll take me a lot longer to read it because I'm not going to be reading 50 or 100 pages at a time. I might be reading 5 or 10 pages at a time. Uh, it just depends on the book. And, and as, as Trey says, it depends on my schedule or my mood, whether I'm being interrupted. Uh, I'll read at home. I'll read in a coffee shop. Uh, I don't I don't read a book every night before I go to bed, but uh, that's that's a good time to read, and I'll, I'll read a chapter or two, so it just depends. Um, you know, I've read books that, as you know, as the cliche says, that you can't put it down because you want to find out what's going to happen. As we've talked about before, my aim in writing a story is 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 to try to capture the reader's attention. I want I want them to wonder how are they going to get out of this, how are they going to resolve this, what's going to happen next. You want it you want it to move along. You want the reader to get caught up in the momentum of the story. So that's that's the goal. I honestly think that'd be my biggest challenge if I tried to author a book would be not to over-explain concepts because mm-hmm. I'm prone to that anyway. It's just my nature. Well, it's especially, and I want to hear your input on this as well. Jay, but for me, there's there's two schools of thought on that. It's you know one is you know treat treat your audience the way you want to be treated, and 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 assume that they're not all idiots. But then at the same time, Stan Lee used to always say, some every comic book is someone's first comic book, and so you never want to leave anything up to assumption. So it's kind of that's for me that's a hard line to play. It's funny you mentioned that because when Shane came in a few minutes ago, I'm reading an article in AARP magazine about the uh, alleged elder abuse of Stan Lee and how he got started as a writer. Um, I don't dumb it down for a reason. I want to challenge the reader. And what you're describing is called backstory. Uh, In my first book, my editor said that I had a little too much, which I took it out, and I think it made the book a lot better. I had the same editor on the second book, and there, he had far fewer recommendations, far fewer corrections. Um, Which is a huge testament to you. Just well, FYI. I took it as a compliment. Uh, he was he was complimentary of both books, uh, but I think I think hopefully hopefully anyway, uh, I think as I write, I get better at it. Like if you run, you get faster. If you cycle, you get better. If you lift weights, you get stronger. So if as a writer. Hopefully I'm improving. Well, and I'm not saying this because you're my buddy, but I can tell you, like I said, um, Glasby's Pirates was twice the book that Glasby's Fortune was for me. I liked it twice as well. And uh, there was no ebb and flow. It just flowed. And that's and that's kind of a huge leap because usually authors don't make that leap quite so quickly. I've read 20 series, and rarely is it such a huge leap. I'm scared that the next one, I'm, I'm scared the next one's going to fall down on me because this one was so high. Well, you have to watch out about, you know, expectations are, can be the ruin of anything. Relationships, movies, books, uh, cigars. So, I do. Th- as I was pondering what you said yesterday, the first book does go into a good bit of detail explaining about how pirates lived and kind of what their rules were. This book is more story than than explanation. There, you've already, if you've read the first book, you know how a pirate ship who's who and what's what, the captain, the quartermaster, the bosun, what their roles are, what their expectations are. So I don't, I don't need to reinvent the wheel. I don't need to explain that. Um, this is more story. There's more plot. There's more themes. 
uh, I can't say it's by design, but it's just I was able to focus more on what was going on than explaining to the reader, you know, the bow is the front of the ship, the stern is the back of the ship, the right. port is the left, the starboard is the right. There's, there's a lot less of that in the second book. There's more, there's more going on. Yeah, a lot more interpersonal interactions going on through that. So tell me about the Mexican experiment. So far, I'm really enjoying it. It's not quite as full-bodied as I would expect from A, a Mexican cigar, and B, a tatuaje. But that's not a bad thing. I'm getting tons of flavor for it. It's very rich and earthy, um, but it's not blowing my head off from, like, smoke or strength. Um, I'm really enjoying it. I wish it would draw just a hair looser. Um, but it's kind of a pseudo box press oval kind of thing, which that shape is not something that I tend to go for for that reason. So, um, so I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to knock any points off because it's something I should have been aware of going in, if that makes sense. Well, the crux is go- is really going well for me. You are smoking it fast. Well, it's a robusto. It's going to happen, and it's my first cigar of the day. Fair enough. Um, but it's very rich. You can taste the good. This is good Nicaraguan tobacco. Was it Casey that was in here, or was it, or do they have a rep down here now? I don't know. Matt gave it to me. Oh, okay. Um, but very rich tobacco. I would definitely be telling Beth to get them. Yeah. Because this is a cigar that I will have another one because it's it's given me everything I want and a little more, and I that's s- hard. To- when I was living in Texas, uh, Crux was was making some inroads. the The story behind that company is really cool. It was a couple of guys who owned a shop and just kind of, and it uh, it may have been brothers. It was either brothers or buddies. I can't remember. Basically, we're running a shop, and they just kind of turned their shop into a house cigar into what this is. And they were becoming really big in Texas at the time when I was living there, and I smoked a bunch of them. And then when I moved back here, um, no one carried them. Abby has them. Uh, there's a couple of other shops in town that have them, but it, they are worth it if you can find them. I'm interested to try it another size. I really want to try it. I, I may I may incrementally step up. I may go to the Toro next and then the Gordo before I go straight to I don't want to go straight to Gordo. And kind of, we've had a lot of discussion, Jay, just to tell Jay, we've had a lot of discussion because the new Nicaraguan, 107 Nicaraguan, is better in different sizes, probably more so than any cigar I've ever smoked. If I was a really, really good writer, I could write a short story called Straight to Gordo. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what it would be about, but it's just a cool title. Is that when Glenda was diagnosed to be pregnant with twins and I fled to Tijuana and faked my own death? Straight <laughs> to Gordo. Yeah. There's no boring stories, just boring storytellers. <laughs> but what are you thinking of the four kicks? I'm enjoying it. I can't describe it as well as you two can, but uh, yeah, it's good. I'd buy I'd buy this and smoke it again. Well, what ex- we, oh, go ahead. You were going the same place I was. Yeah, let's step away for a break real quick. Um, When we come back, we're going to discuss stoicism. This is the reason I was hoping Jay was here on my way up here. I really want to discuss stoicism and how it applies to our lives. It's just there was a great Art of Manliness article about it, and I'm just very excited for this second half of the show. All right, we'll be back with that after this.
Welcome back to the Cigar Cast. This is one of your hosts, Shane, sitting across from the wells to my ash plant, Mr. Trey Dedman. <laughs> is that accurate or is he? Well, I don't know. Trey has a little more emotion than I do. Well, we're going to talk about that. But, okay. If you had somebody you needed to kill, who would you rather, who would you go to? It had to be me or Trey. Who would you choose? You. Absolutely. If there was a busload of nuns and orphans. that? If there was a busloads of nuns and orphans that needed macheted in a zombie field, who would you go to, me or Trey? <laughs> you. <laughs> All right. See, superiority established. Go ahead, Trey. Do your worst. Wow. <laughs> I'm positioned exactly where I should be because empathy is an important is an important emotion, and you can tell people that have it, and you can tell people that don't. And uh, yeah. Shane doesn't have a lot of it. <laughs> Trey has way too much, as do I. When you feel things that other people are experiencing and you can't shut that off, it can become very painful. It can become a, it can become a, almost a, crippling, almost a curse. Yes. Yeah. Um. Anyway, that that relates to the topic du jour, does it not? It does. So we're gonna jump right past cigars for a moment. And I will hit cigars toward the end because I have a little bit of shameless self-promotion to do. All right. But um, in the Art of Manliness. Now, are you familiar with the Art of Manliness? I am. And uh, The Art of Manliness is a great group of guys that do amazing articles about um, men's lifestyle. And uh, you can go to theartofmanliness.com. So this morning as I was getting ready, I seen an article, James Bond and Stoicism. Now... I'm, I like this article from the standpoint of this is the only way that I feel I could adequately communicate stoicism to Trey. This brings a better example into Trey's life. I have never been offended in all my life. How does that offend you? It's like if you were trying to explain logic to me and you had a Sherlock Holmes article. It's kind of the perfect analogy. You should be flattered that I've Instead of just telling you the tornado shelter story, which I'm going to here in a minute, um, I, I found an article that kind of brought this to okay. life for you. Okay. It's a vehicle for expressing your thoughts. Yes. Anyway. And, uh, and you, are you a regular on Nate's Bond podcast yet? Mm-hmm. I thought you were. Yeah. Yeah. I'm one of the, I'm one of the talking heads. On I, feel the, like, I feel like he's stepping out on me here, Jay. Do you feel like if he, when he does another it's podcast a, it's behind a, your back? It's a YouTube channel. It's not a podcast. It's, uh, not, a, it's not a zero-sum game. And I'm yeah, not, it was just a hooker, honey. It really meant nothing. I'm, I'm not garfunkling you, if that's what you're saying. <laughs> I don't even know what that means, but it, it's probably relevant. Uh, there's also a concept called scarcity. It's about money, attention, time, affection, podcasts. It could be applied to anything. We sometimes buy into the notion that that there is scarcity, but there really isn't. It's just a perception. Uh, There can be more love. There can be more this. There can be more that. He can do more than one podcast a week. That's my point. It doesn't. But if he does that one better than this one, I am off the rails. You can't be that way, Shane. We're going to have to work on that. (laughs) Okay. But and let's talk about so stoicism. Jay, you've you are the more well read on this than I am. What is your definition of the Stoic? Well, I used to have a more limited definition where you were kind of like a statue and you just, you just, you just grinned and bared it. Uh, you just took it. I actually, it wasn't long ago that I read uh, one of the most 
famous philosophical books ever written. It's Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. Mm-hmm. Um, very articulately written, and he was an emperor of Rome, and he dealt with power and fame and life and death, all the things that we all deal with. Uh, and he wrote about honor, reputation, lifestyle, choices. I think that fundamentally that Stoicism to me means that you recognize that you can't control events, but you have a great, I think a greater degree of control than you realize over your reaction to events. It's not what happens to you, it's how you react to it. It's about your attitude. And the Stoic recognizes that you have love lost, you have loved ones lost, you can have fortunes lost. But take that as an example. You lose a fortune, you make another one. If you made one, you can make two. And I've seen that uh, with entrepreneurs because not everyone is successful at everything they attempt. Not all relationships uh, last forever. In fact, most of them don't. Uh, The relationship between a parent and a child, between a husband and a wife, uh, between lovers, uh, between siblings, between friends, all those relationships matter to us a great deal. And uh, they're all fragile. And uh, the Stoic doesn't just sit there and contemplate his or her navel. You can actually cultivate those things and be more, be more proactive, which is a, a, a version of Stoicism, I think, that I derive from, from reading meditations. Uh, being more comfortable with nature, being more comfortable with mortality, uh, being being mindful that you can't change the past, you can't control the future, but you have to live in the moment. And that is a very easy thing to say, but it's a very difficult thing, I think, for a lot of us to do, to enjoy each moment as it comes, each day as it comes. Well, so the I, can, I consider myself a somewhat a stoic and all because... The purest example of stoicism in my life is drawing plans and when people ask me about tornado shelters. People ask me all the time, well, I want a tornado shelter. What do you think? And I have to say, the first thing I say to them is, well, if I'm going to die, I can either die hiding in a shelter or sitting in my my living room, cold beer in my hand. I said, so it's not a big deal in my life. And they say, okay, well, if you were going to build a tornado shelter, where would you do it? And I'd say, put it in the pantry so while you're hiding, you'll have something to eat. Well, that's the pragmatic stoic. Yes. (laughs) The pragmatic stoic. And all, but that's kind of a very stoic view to me because my view of stoicism, if you were going to ask me to Shane, put it in a, put a nice little bow on stoicism. Stoicism is controlling all of the factors to which you can control to the utmost of your abilities in such a way that the factors you can't control really don't bother you. Which most things we can't control. And that's an, that's another lesson that we have to learn. The one thing that we can control is ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, but I can't control other people. And if I try, it's it's a recipe for disaster. It can ruin a relationship. And men men suffer from it, I think, to a greater degree, because we're supposed to be strong and stalwart, and the wind is supposed to go around us, not knock us down. The, the reality is it will knock you down. You just have to get back up. Well, and this is where I think, you know, languages change and evolve over time. And I think, you know, we, we have this this American vision of being stoic as being sort of statuesque, like you said earlier. Um, but there's, you know, but it can, 
it can take multiple forms and stoicism at its core for me you know to your to your tornado shelter example putting yourself in a position to be safe it does not necessarily fly in the face of stoicism yes you know if the tornado is going to get you it's going to get you but if you have an 80 percent greater chance of survival in a tornado shelter that's not stoic to avoid it it's stupid if you were a pure Stoic in the in the more traditional sense of the word, or the more I think general view of it, you wouldn't wear a seatbelt. But a seatbelt protects you in the event of a collision, and it's there for a reason. There's no reason not to wear a seatbelt. It and almost you're you're almost teetering, if I may, um, towards Calvinism more so than Stoicism. Which let me, is a, let a me pre- give you. Let me. I'm sorry to interrupt. Go you. Ahead. I was looking at Shane. Another example that pops to mind is in reading about World War One. Um, pilots had a much higher rate of death than than the guy in the trenches, and actually a fifty percent death rate. It oh was, my gosh! It was twenty five percent died in accidents; the other twenty five percent died in combat. Uh, the average life expectancy of a new pilot was not even ninety days because they they didn't have the skill set to survive in in aerial combat. You know, those planes were made out of balsa wood and sticks and wire and there was a propeller and machine gun in it. What there wasn't was a parachute because it was it was viewed as unmanly to carry a parachute because you were accepting the fact that you might have to jump out of the damn thing. But having a parachute could save your life and you could go back to fight again. In in forty or forty years later, when they were uh, the, when the British were fighting the Germans over London and all over England in the Battle of Britain, one of the reasons that the British prevailed was when a German pilot went down, he was a POW. When a British pilot went down, he was still a pilot, and he could get in another airplane and go back up, which they did. So surviving uh, to fight another day uh, is a positive. Thus, the storm shelter, the seatbelt, the parachute, it's not a sign of giving in to weakness. It's preparing yourself for the things that you can control. And there are things that we can control, and I think oftentimes we relinquish that. Again, our attitude is what we can control can control uh, to some degree. You can't control other things. You can't control events. They're going to come at you like bugs on a windshield. And if you're prepared for that, you have a greater chance of surviving and thriving. Uh, that, that was the lesson of Marcus Aurelius, is not to look at the dark side, which is often tempting when talking about things like death, mortality, disease, uh, failed relationships, loss of children, Certainly, that was much more common in centuries past. Um, is looking at the positive things and the things that that you can control, uh, which is an empowering thing. Sometimes, when you relinquish, when you come to the conclusion that you can't control, as a parent, you cannot control your kids. You can discipline them, you can lock them up, but eventually, they're going to be on their own. And soon, it happens much quicker than most people realize until they've had kids. They're going to fly the coop. You have to equip them to make their decisions and not make their decisions for them. Um, so when you when you realize that, it empowers you because it does tend to make you focus more on those things that you can control, which is somewhat limited. Well, but you got to play the odds. You know, when you're dealing with what are you going to be prepared for and what are you not, the odds of me getting into a car wreck where a seatbelt will save my life are gigantic. So I put on a seatbelt every time I get in a car wreck. The odds of a tornado hitting my house and killing me, eh, fairly remote. 
hardly hardly worth an eight thousand dollar storm shelter in my garage. Well, there's always a cost benefit analysis to anything, any decision that mm-hmm. you make. Um, back in 1918, parachutes might not have been readily available. They certainly were in 1940 and 42. Now, you know, it was in my lifetime that most cars were built without seat belts. It was an option. Then it became mandatory. And there was, re- there was resistance to it at first, but now I think pretty much seat belts and, and shoulder harnesses, even airbags, w- we've come to recognize their utilitarian purpose. It does add to the cost of a car, but what, what price losing a loved one or yourself in a car, in a car collision? Well, the, like I said, it's, it's a cost-benefit analysis. Um, you know, to, the, to say the true sto- stoic wouldn't wear a seat belt, I don't know is accurate, but I think he would evaluate the seatbelt on a different level. Well, I think he was commenting that your position of stoicism at that time was was leaning towards me. And that's well, and that's why I was kind of drawing some comparison to Calvinism, which is sort of a, a belief that everything is preordained. That that idea that if it's my time to go, it's my time to go, whether I'm in the shelter or I'm in my living room. And and I, I personally don't necessarily espouse that kind of ideology. I know people who do. Because, um, yeah, it, it really ultimately comes down to that 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 cost-benefit analysis of is is my is this something I can change? Yes. Is the effort required to change it worth the the benefit of the change that will come from it? That's what you have to evaluate. Well, and there's never been a year in the history of man that this has become more prevalent. As you start talking about coronavirus, as you start talking about masks, as you start talking about social distance, as you start talking about all of these different features, it is hard. It is a more of a struggle to remain a conscientious stoic. Yeah, well, and a you, stoic you, of conscience. Well, yeah, let me put it you, that way. You know, to go back to the Bond example, you know, he may have had that stoic principle of if I'm going to die, I'm going to die, but he still carried a gun. Well, I want to hear more about this article because I I'm I'm not nearly the Bond fan that that Trey is, but. Uh, I am a Bond fan, so I want, to, I want to know what the article was saying about this fictional character in Stoicism. Well, just to kind of hit the, the high points on the article, one of the, big, one of the big principles, concentrate on what you can control, secure your base. That means if you're a spy, be physically fit, be able to shoot a gun, keep your knife sharp, um, you know, really be cognizant of your surroundings. I, mean, um, I have a lot of trouble with hypervigilance. In that, you know, my father, my brother, they could jump into a 60-foot camper with a 20-foot trailer behind it and drive it from here to the ends of the earth and never sweat it. I'd be a nervous wreck in five miles because I'm, I'm too hyper-aware of what's going on around me to be able to unplug that portion. Well, and, and as this pertains to Bond, it, it less so in the... In general, this applies more to the literary version of the character than it does the theatrical However, you know, in early Bond films, uh, especially in the Connery era, you know, there was this this character trait of the fact that no matter what anyone talked about, he knew the answers. You know, what do you know about diamonds? What do you know about gold? What do you know about the? And he was a a wealth of information, and that kind of goes to me of always being at least cognizant enough of your surroundings that you can play in the sandbox if you find yourself thrown into one. Well, one of the things uh, I'm sure that somebody listening to this is familiar with MacGyverism and MacGyver, you know, making a machine gun out of a, a roll of bailing wire, uh, some 
plastic soda straws, a paper clip, and some rubber bands, and, and some bullets. But being able to adapt is, is key to survival for, for any creature, uh, especially for us. Then we do live in a complicated world. And, and I've often said <clears throat> that no knowledge is useless. It could always be used for some purpose, even if it's just to answer trivia questions. But no, we've talked about this too, Shane, about man skills, about being able to sharpen a knife, being able to know which end of the gun the bolts come out of, being able to fire a weapon and hit what you're, hit what you're aiming at, being able to catch a fish, build a tent, build a fire, uh, hammer a nail, put up, put up drywall, repair you know, a leaky roof, even to change a flat tire. No, knowledge, knowledge is something that I think we often take for granted because when we have it, we have it. But when you, when you have it, or when you need it and don't have it, that's when you suffer. Well, um, you know, I've, here's my complaint with Bond. He's the worst spy ever. Well, yeah. Because a spy would not want to stick out. A spy would want to blend into the crowd. But as a literary device and as a theatrical device, if he blended into the crowd, it wouldn't be a very exciting movie. Right, and I've, I've, made, that, I've made that point um, before at the fact that, you know, no... Everywhere he goes, he tells people his name. It's, it's just one of those, like, you're not a very good spy if you don't have any aliases. Bond, James Bond. So it's a security number, 56783. <laughs> I have to tell you this. When I was uh, a Marine Corps judge advocate stationed in London, I had to call a Navy lawyer who was stationed in the Philippines. And he answered the phone, Bond, James Bond, Commander James Bond. He was a real guy. I thought, what a life he must have led, right. stuck with the name James Bond forever and ever, um, and, he, and he was a commander to boot. Of course, you know, it's easy for us to talk about fictional characters, but they all have human characteristics and traits that we either want to emulate or that we can castigate or that we can emulate or want to, want to try to do. Bond is a larger-than-life character. He's not a superhero, but he... You know, whatever jam he gets in, whatever hardship he endures, he's able to work his way out of it. And that's why it's so entertaining. That's why he's a heroic figure. And one of the things about Bond that I think you were alluding to was he recognizes the things that he can't control, and he doesn't let that slow him down or hamper him. He doesn't become a prisoner of circumstance or a prisoner of fate. That's the part about being empowered. He looks for ways to get out of difficulty. Right. It's the, you expect me to talk? You know, it's, it's kind of the flying in the face of we're going we're gonna to get what we want out of you via torture. Right. So we've got more on this article, which I do want to get to. But just in case we run out of time, I have a question for both of you as it pertains to this. Is do you think Stoics make good teachers? Shane? Yes. And here's why. Just as Jay knew when I walked in here last night that I was going to tell him exactly what I thought. There was never a moment where he thought, Shane may sugarcoat this to protect my feelings. Just like I have friends that come to me for advice and ask me, Shane, what do you think about this? And I tell them, I think that's the stupidest words that have ever issued forth from your pie hole. Um, there's, there's such value in a teacher that bears no personal conduction same as with a doctor you don't want a doctor that feels sorry for you because you got cancer you want a doctor that'll tell you you got cancer and here are your options so i believe a stoic is the perfect teacher i think one of the things that makes that true is that 
I think a true Stoic, and I'm going back to uh, meditations, we are all works in progress. It doesn't matter how old you are. You're always evolving. You're always changing. You're always trying to learn. One of the ways you can learn is from your own experiences, but you can learn from the experiences of others. That's why we tell stories and share, how did you get out of that? How did you figure that out? How do you do that? You know, we don't just wake up one day with knowledge. And we can't experience everything, nor would you want to. But we can learn from others, and we can take the knowledge that we have and pass it on to others. So I think that uh, the true Stoic is eager to share his or her experiences and knowledge so it can benefit someone else, which also benefits you. We've also we've talked about the role of mentors, Shane, and how important they are. And uh, I think that everyone has the opportunity to sometimes be the learner and sometimes be the teacher. But, you know, knowledge is not something that you want to put in your back pocket and keep it there. You want, you want to share the knowledge that you have and the expertise and, and experiences that you have. So I think that, uh, again, because it is a philosophy about life, you want to be able to pass that on. And if, if somebody isn't, isn't more optimistic than pessimistic, they can actually benefit somebody and make their life better. What do you think, Trey? No, I agree. I was just curious as to not only what you what you guys felt on the matter, but also kind of how you derived at, at those answers. And we were talking about what the opposite of a stoic is. Uh, there is a certain. There was also at the same time, uh, you know, the Greek the Greek uh, story about Narcissus, uh, about Bacchanalia, about hedonism, Epicureanism. These are people that live solely for for creature comforts, for pleasure. Uh, Dionysus and the wine, Bacchanalia with the wine and the food and the orgies and all. I don't think a Stoic uh, follows that line of thought. No, uh, and and there's and there tends to be a a line drawn, it, not in this article because it would kind of undermine their premise a little bit, um, but between sobriety and not not necessarily from a teetotaling perspective, but a sobriety of mind and a, and a moderation. Uh, in, in in all things, and, and I think um, and and I think that's kind of to your point flies in the face of some of these you know hedonistic pursuits, these creature comforts, materialism, or whatever it however it may manifest itself in that given person. Realizing it was not that long ago in historical terms, George Washington was very much a stoic. He was. He was very much in control of himself. He was very cognizant of his reputation as he lived, as well as his reputation in, into the future, his legacy. And he took great pains to, uh, to, to be perceived and, and to be worthy of perception as a, as a man of honor and integrity. And that would make him less likely to be, uh, you know, engage in extramarital affairs or to do... Uh, business deals that were unethical or to uh, mistreat people and people that served him or people that worked with him. Uh, the more I came to know about George Washington, the more I respected him for that. He was a very, he was a man of, he, he was very ambitious, but he wasn't ambitious just for its own sake. Uh, he was a very interesting person. And again, I relate, I relate so much of this is something that Shane and I have talked about during many of our conversations, whether it's about the acquisition of wealth uh, or things or fame that, or, or cons- consumption of anything, be it cigars, be it food, be it drink, is all things in balance. There, there is, 
to some degree, a stoic exercise is a degree of self-control. You just don't run with abandon. Well, and it's, it's interesting because when you brought up George Washington, it reminded me. So uh, there's an author, Brad Meltzer. Um, not familiar, if you're not familiar with him, especially if you have kids um, who are kind of in that early tween, early teens age, Excellent, um, excellent author that I highly recommend for you to, to share with your kids because he, he, what he does is he takes these characters and he breaks them down. Uh, Amelia Earhart, um, he just did one on Anne Frank, f- which is a really hard story to try and convey to a 12-year-old. But um, he does an excellent job of it. He, uh, he also just released one on Ben Franklin. And this is a man that is kind of a a conundrum for me on this topic, because in some ways he was very much a stoic. You know, he would he had these rules and habits with which he tried to live his life. But he recognized his own limitations that if he tried to live perfectly for everything at all times, he would never be able to accomplish it. So he would set weeks or months at a time that I'm going to do this and I'm going to focus on developing this habit or trait and, and, and focusing on this rule. But then at the same time, he would go over to France for months at a time and live a very hedonistic lifestyle. So very much, it's interesting to see the way certain philosophies manifest themselves in part of a person's life and maybe not, not in others. Well, Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson were both what I would consider to be Renaissance men. Mm-hmm. They 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 exceeded uh, they exceeded in many different fields of endeavor, and I think that was to some degree a product of the age in which they lived. They were they were products of uh, the Enlightenment, um, but they were always they, one of the things that I find that separates one group of people from another is natural curiosity. I'm a very curious person. And uh, that's why I want to know more. That's why I read. That's why I want to become better educated. I want to know more about things, whether it's science. You could fill in the blank. It doesn't matter. And it really doesn't matter what it is that makes somebody uh, delve into something. If, if it's carving wood ducks or collecting coins or making model railroads Whatever it is, it's something that they enjoy and they learn from, and they, they derive joy from it. Uh, some people make their own ale and beer. I think you said, Trey, you've done that in the mm-hmm. past. I did uh, that for many years. Uh, there's nothing that's there's nothing wrong with those activities. Gardening. Uh, I think that I f- almost feel sorry for people that don't have outside interests. If all they want to do is work and make money, uh, that that's the recipe I think for for depression and uh, an unfulfilled life. Well. And as you know, as we discuss the opposite of stoicism, for me, the opposite of stoicism would be complacency. Um, people too often say, "I want the government to take care of me. I want this person to take care of me. I want my boss to treat me better. I want this, that, and other." Those are all things you can control. Those are all things that, if you have the energy, you can control the factors around you. If you don't like your boss, and you think you can do it better than him? Do it. You'll be rewarded. If you don't like the way the government treats you, vote them out. Talk to people about it. You know, we don't get into politics. Anytime I'm holding a cigar, I hate the thought of getting into politics. But there is, to me, that's the very opposite. The antithesis of stoicism would be complacency, would be the people that sit back and say, oh, I grew up in this area, so I'm not able to do this, or oh, that person has these societal norms that prohibit them from doing things. And this is a 
argument Trey and I have on a weekly basis. Well, and I think, you know, I was reading in a separate article on Stoicism today about how a lot of times, you know, so much of our life is is cyclical. Um, you know, extreme right-wing politics and extreme left-wing politics are actually very close. It's just very few people join up at the back. Most people go the, the long way around. And if you take stoicism too far, you can go to a, a more fatalistic, and that's rather than complacency, I would go more fatalistic, which is just that the, the idea that nothing is within my control. And then that is similar in, in principle to what you're talking about. Well, but I interact with people every day that would love to have what I have, but don't want to do the 20 years of work it takes to get it. Well, that's, I would call that, I don't know if I'm coining the phrase, but uh, that would be victimology. Uh, yeah, and I, I think... You, you choose to be a victim. It's a choice. Uh, I've, I've thought about this a lot over the recent year or so. People are far more masters of their own fate than they're willing to recognize. You can be knocked down and get back up over and over again. It's not how many times you get knocked down. It's the fact that you keep getting up. And that's where you have... I'm talking about anyone, any age, anywhere. You make decisions. In fact, your life is a, is a never-ending series of your choices. And if you choose to sit on your ass and do nothing, that's what you'll get. If you choose to get off your ass and do something, it may not work, but at least you're making the effort. And it is all about trying, it's trying to move forward and not just get stuck in the mud and stay stuck there. Mm-hmm. Well, and the purest example of this is found in yard sales. I'm going the long way around for this one, fellas. In yard sales, when I go to a neighborhood that is million and a half plus houses that's having a yard sale, I'll guarantee you in the basement of every one of those houses is the remnants of three or four failed businesses, of businesses that failed before they got to the one that succeeded, that was part of their journey, and I buy their stuff and resell it. But um, I thought you were going a different way with that. I thought you were going to talk about exercise equipment. <laughs> That's where I thought it was going for sure, where you hang your shirts and your coat. But it's almost always they have a couple of failed businesses under their belt before they got to the one that let them buy the million-dollar house in the heart of Brentwood and all. And it's, re- it's really no more, it's never no more obvious than in that moment. But I, I don't think what you're talking about now at this point goes into pure stoic uh, principles or ideology, and I think that's one of the things that's kind of important. And I, I, I touched on it with Ben Franklin a little bit, but also, you know, it, one of the tenets of stoicism is moderation and, and and sobriety of mind. And I think part of that comes from not only just believing, idealizing, and exuding these principles, but also recognizing the times. You know, there are times to take up arms for example. And I don't know that that inherently aligns with the Stoic philosophy. I'm not saying it flies in the face of it, but, you know, so I think it's important for, you know, you don't necessarily have to be a Stoic to be a successful business person, and not every successful business person is going to be a Stoic. I think there are principles, and this is why philosophy is such a difficult subject to discuss, but also so very, very interesting, as you've got people like John Stuart Mill was a Stoic, and but then you've also got people um, who espouse other ideas of philosophy that 
if you take bits and pieces from each of them, you form a new school of thought and philosophy. And so it's ever-evolving and it's ever-changing. And well, I think... And they're not mutually ex- exclusive. Exactly. Uh, they blend. Uh, we're all the same, but we're all different. And what works for Shane may not work for Trey. What works for me may not work for either one of you. That goes back to the, the other thing, which I do find to be a challenge. It sounds deceptively simple, but know thyself. Uh, sometimes introspection can be very valuable. Uh, you know, we all have a perception of how we're perceived by others. And I've learned that you can't put too much emphasis on that because that doesn't define you. That lets others define you. How you define yourself is, 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 just, is not only a reflection of your inner thoughts, but it's how it's manifested in the way you behave. So if you start a business and it fails, you learn from that. And then your next business, you try to take those lessons and make it work. That's why I say that we're all works in progress. And if you keep trying and you keep pushing and you keep pulling, the chances are that you're going to at least have more opportunities than somebody that just sits on their ass and does nothing. Well, we're coming to the end of the show at all. And, you know, to kind of put a, put a bow on stoicism, there is a downside to stoicism. I experience it every day. I am not a sympathetic person. And there are a certain number of people that are turned off of me because of that. Because I don't have that, that element of being compassionate to where they are in life. My, my opinion's always going to be, well, if you don't like where you are, why ain't you changing it? And, I'll, and there is a downside to that. There is a certain amount of people in life that I'm going to push away from me rather than to me due to a more stoic-type stance. There's another thing that could be injected into this very quickly. I think, I think that we, we are drawn sometimes because of the nature of America and capitalism to being competitors, which can be very frustrating. This goes back to the notion of scarcity. There's only so much. There's, there's an unlimited amount of everything. And there's a, there's a lot more that can be accomplished through co- collaboration and cooperation than there is from being competitive. We are not you know, going back to cliches, no man is an island. We are social beings. And you can accomplish far more if you ask for help and give help than if you just try to do it on your own. This, this, lone, this lone hero that kind of James Bond and these other fictional characters, that does send a little bit of a false message. James Bond is not working alone. He's got all of MI6 behind him. You know, he's got sidekicks and he's got M and he's got Q. He's got people helping him. So it's not just James Bond. He's representative of a pyramid, and he may be at the top of the pyramid, but we're all like that. And it's not, it's not that we have to be cutthroat in everything that we do, it, that somebody has something, we have to take it from them. We can share. We can do things together. And, and one of those is, is to discuss these things because it's supposed to be thought-provoking. It may make you think more about yourself and how you can how you can improve. And that's, I mean, and I can't think of, a, of, of another better example for that than the cigar industry. You know, you've got one guy, see, look at me tying this in. Uh, you've got one guy who's the face of a company, maybe two guys, but without the t- dozens of people out in the field planting seeds, cultivating, watering, trimming, um, harvesting, uh, fermenting, rolling, packaging, you know, it's, it's truly a collaborative effort. And, and one person's success is the result of many, many hands worth of work. And then 
we were talking about AJ Fernandez last week. You know, there's 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 enough room on the shelves for everybody, and that's why we see so many collaborations and so so much. And I think that's a a great example of the fact that a certain level of competition is is good, but a rising tide ultimately lifts all boats. They're not mutually ex- exclusive, right? If you're going to design homes, you want to be as good as you can possibly be. You don't have to be the best, and you don't have to be perfect. But you, Shane, want to be the best at whatever it is you do. If I write books, I want to be as good as I can be. I'm not trying to be Harper Lee or Michael Conley or anybody else. I'm just trying to same thing as a lawyer. I I don't have to be the best lawyer. I just want to be the best lawyer I can be. Mm -hmm. Well, and I find myself repeating the mantra in designing homes. The hardest part of designing homes is finishing them. Because once I've finished, I want to review it again, and I want to check. And finally, I just have to say, hey, sometimes you're going to shoot the engineer and build the house. Yeah, I I just finished. We're going through a rebranding with my company, and I've been uh, spearheading that entire operation to the point that we were working on a new promotional brochure, and I've been going through edits on that for now a week and a half of just constantly tweaking this and tweaking that. And finally this morning, I sent it off to the, the printer and I said, it's, it's, it's as done as it can be right now because otherwise I will sit here and, you know, and develop paralysis by analysis. All right. Rank the, rank the Mexican experiment. I am really shocked to say this is about a five and three quarters. This is good. That's probably generous to my, to my appraisal. Now, have you had the first one or just the I've ME2? Okay. I'm really, and I don't know if it's the time of day, the quality of the company or what, but it's, it's really treated me well. Now, it picked up in the second half. The first half, I was kind of around that four and three quarters mark, five mark. Um, it, has, it has come alive in the second half. Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring up the company and the timing and the cigar and all that because the crux... I would like to give it a seven, but I can't in good conscience because I've smoked it with two of my favorite people in the world doing one of my favorite things in the world at my favorite time of the day in the world. So in good conscience, I cannot just flat out give the crux a seven. I've got to give it a six and a half because I've got to smoke another one. um, Under different circumstances. I've got to smoke another one when I've had a bad day and something's gone wrong. And I'm just trying to relax on my back porch and unplug for the day to feel like I could give it the really honest review it deserves. But as of right now, it's a six and a half. Mm-hmm. All right, Jay, so the scale is one to seven. One is I would only smoke it again if it was offered to me by a grouchy third world dictator. Seven is I can't wait to get my hands upon it again. It's the best cigar that I've ever smoked. Well, for some odd reason, I was thinking it was a scale of one to ten and I was going to give this a six, but I'll give it a five. All right. Yeah, that's about right for that cigar. That's yeah, about I where so. I would put I'd put both of y'all's at about a five just from my personal palate. So the book is Glasby's Pirates. It's available on Amazon in both paperback and ebook form. And uh, I will ha- I do have to say the paperback has a nice little velvet touch kind of feel on the cover. It's the same thing. I stole that and put it on my business cards. I love it. It's a matte finish, I think. It's yeah, called. it's yeah. got a it's got a very nice. I'm I'm a big I'm a big fan of traditional physical books. I don't like the ebook thing, and this one feels great in the hand. And and that's I don't like uh, I don't like glossy print glossy cover i like it's a little i think it's just got a it's a it's got a richer feel to it yeah well the stoic side of my personality loves ebooks 
because I can control the size of the text. I can control the height of the text. I can control the rate at which I read it. So I'm very few paperback books come into my life. Yeah. At all. So it, it is an interesting conundrum. But how do they get a hold of us, Trey, and how do they get a hold of Jay? Uh, they can reach us at uh, facebook.com slash thecigarcast. We're on Instagram and Twitter at thecigarcast. And you can reach us via email at info at thecigarcast.com. Uh, www.jdresherlaw.com. And then I have a Facebook page called Glassby's Fortune. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening this week. Until next week, have a great cigar and think well of us. Thank you.